you'll open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, while you're turning there, let me tell you two traditions that uh, were true in my grandparents' home. And as you know, I was raised in uh, Central Florida, Titusville, Florida, on the East Coast, but I spent many weeks uh, growing up in Ashland, Kentucky at my, at my grandparents. And there were two things that were true in my grandparents. One, at six o'clock, Monday night through Friday night, we watched Walter Cronkite. Now, most of you don't know who Walter Cronkite is unless you're a history buff, uh, but Walter Cronkite is one of the most iconic figures in newscasting. Uh, Walter Cronkite would come in and literally millions of people time their day, plan their day to watch Walter Cronkite's broadcast. The second thing that was true, and my grandfather was a retired Marine, so uh, most of my life, my grandfather uh, had retired from the military and, and didn't work outside the, outside the home. So every morning we would get up, we'd eat breakfast together, and uh, he would read the newspaper. And uh, if we were to take a poll of how many people actually knew who Walter Cronkite was, I'd say it'd be less than 50% of us. If we ask how many people still receive a daily newspaper, it would probably be about three of us. And so those are things that were true of a bygone era, uh, but there's a lot of things that were true in Walter Cronkite's day that are equally true in our own day. That is, if you were to listen to a newscast by Walter Cronkite, if we could transport him into the 21st century, uh, he would talk about widespread child abuse, alarming increases in internet pornography, Serial killings, terrorism, anarchy, ruthless dictatorships, cities overflowing with violence and hatred, uh, politics filled with corruption. That is, reading the, the news on the teleprompter for Walter Cronkite in the 21st century wouldn't be vastly different than it, than it was when Walter Cronkite gave the evening news. Things have seemingly exacerbated and increased a little bit over the, over the past uh, several decades. But if we were to go back to the 8th century before Christ, the description that I gave except for internet pornography would be absolutely true. That was the world in the 8th century B.C., it sounds very much like the world in the 7th century B.C. when we looked at Habakkuk. In fact, we finished Habakkuk and now we're looking at Jonah. We're looking at, at two prophets. In, in some ways, they're alike, and in other ways, they're very, very different. For example, they, they ministered or served or prophesied in different centuries. Jonah in the 8th century, Habakkuk in the 7th century. Habakkuk prophesied to the southern kingdom, Judah, and Jonah prophesied to the northern kingdom, Israel. Now, you'll remember, as I mentioned, after the death of King Solomon, whose father was King David, the, the kingdom divided. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And so Judah and Israel often had different prophets. Habakkuk struggled with God. We saw that over the last few weeks. Habakkuk struggled with the fact, first, that God wasn't doing what Habakkuk thought he should do. 
That is, discipline his people for their idolatry and and sinfulness. And then when God told him he was going to discipline them, that he was raising up a distant empire, the Babylonians, that that would sweep across the ancient world, eventually make their way to Jerusalem, devastate and destroy Jerusalem, devastate and demolish the temple, take off the best and the brightest into captivity, Uh, He was taken aback by that. He didn't like God's plan. He couldn't understand how God could use a vile, wicked people to punish his people who were less vile and wicked than the Babylonian people. And then God described what he intended to do to the Babylonians. And, And Habakkuk eventually came to the settled conclusion, God is God. God's got plans and ways that are not my plans and ways. His ways are higher than my ways. Uh, Blessed be the name of the Lord, his will be done. Jonah, on the other hand, is going to be called to go to the Assyrian Empire. Everything the Babylonians were, the Assyrians were on steroids. Uh, The Assyrians were a vile, violent, wicked empire. Their capital city was Nineveh. Nineveh was about 500 miles from Jerusalem. And so he had quite a journey. He he had quite quite a way to... To, to make it to Syria to preach to the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh. He hated the Assyrians. He despised the Ninevites. He felt like that they deserved God's judgment and, and they deserved to go to hell forever and ever. The last thing they deserved was to have a prophet of God preach to them the word of God Because if they were to repent, God would forgive them and they would go to heaven just like God's people would go to heaven. They didn't deserve to go to heaven. And so while Habakkuk eventually came around to God's plan, I'm not sure that we can say the same thing about Jonah, the prophet. Most of the time when we think about Jonah, we think about the big fish. But there's a lot more to the book of Jonah and a lot more to learn from Jonah than just a big fish. Jonah is a picture of what it means to run away from God. There are three things I want you to to notice this morning about the first 16 verses. And you may be wondering, well, pastor, how how is this getting us ready for the Lord's Supper? I think by the end, you'll be able to see that. I want you to notice first the fall of a man of God. The fall of a man of God. Jonah's going to do two things. He is going to reject God's call, and he's going to run from God's presence. Look at me in verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. Uh, Circle the word great. The word great is going to be used 14 times in the book. Nineveh is called a great city. It's a great city because of its size. It's a great city because of its influence, even though its influence was a wicked influence. And God wasn't indifferent to what they were doing. God was not unaware of what they were doing. In fact, he says, their wickedness has come up before me. It's like their wickedness was a big bonfire. And as the smoke ascends to heaven with every scent of the smell smell of Nineveh, 
He smelled their immorality, their decadence, their violence, their idolatry. He knew exactly what was going on in Nineveh, and he was not indifferent to it. But notice what Jonah does. Jonah has a clear word from God, an articulated word from God, a specific word from God. There's no doubt at all what God wants him to do. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, and cry out, preach against its wickedness. So in verse 3, notice what Jonah does. He tries to flee the presence of God. I want you to notice two things in verse 3. The first one is the word Tarshish is mentioned three times. And the phrase, the presence of the Lord, is mentioned two times. It's as if the author doesn't want us to miss what Jonah is doing, where he's headed, and whom he's fleeing. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and boarded it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, He didn't want to be in God's manifest presence. Uh, He knew that he's the omnipresent God, that there's nowhere you can flee fully from from God's presence, his omnipresence. But he wanted to get away from the sense of God's actual presence, his manifest presence. So he's going to go to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? Tarshish is where you go when you try and run away from God. How could he, the prophet of God, the man of God, run from the person of God? How could he? But he did. He did do it because he didn't like what God was doing. And just like he ran from God and went to Tarshish, I can tell you that all of us have made our our own journeys to Tarshish. We haven't liked the way that God was doing things in our lives. We didn't like the place that God had put us. And so what do we do? We try to find a ship that will get us away from the presence of God. We don't like the circumstances of our lives, so we we do what what Jonah does in the next section. We just sleep it off. We try to sleep it off. But we can't sleep it off because the thoughts we had when we went to sleep are the same thoughts we have when we wake up. We don't like where we are, and we don't want to stay here. Tarshish is where you go when you enter into a relationship as a single person with a person you know is not following hard after God. It's where you go when you hope and pray and dream, maybe I can change this man or this lady. But I'm going I'm to keep this relationship because it may be the last, it may be the last chance I get. Tarshish is where you go when you just can't stand the people that you work with. Tarshish is where you go when you find yourself complaining rather than praying for them, despising them rather than 
having sorrow on the fact they may not know Jesus. Tarshish is where we run when we don't like where we are. Or we don't like what God has called us to be or who called, what God has called us to do. How could he? And the same could be said of me. How could I? Jonah had a clear call from God. He knew what God had called him to do. He knew where God had called him to go, but he didn't like it because he didn't think that the Ninevites were worthy of a message from God because he was afraid they would repent and God would forgive them of their sins. They were his bitter enemies. He despised them. He looked on them with the greatest of disgust. They deserve to go to hell because of all of the violence that they have done. They deserved it because of their idolatry and their sexual promiscuity. They deserve it. And they don't deserve to hear a message from God. So we, we see the fall of a man of God. We see it happen all around us. We see big-name people, big-name figures they abandon Christianity and they spew it across the internet. We see it on lesser occasions when people just quit attending church. They just quit coming to church. They just quit following God. It's not big. It's not broadly splashed across the internet. They just abandon God because they don't like what God has done with them or where God has taken them. Well, I want you to notice with me, secondly, that God pursues those who run. Jonah thinks he can get away from the presence of God. He can outrun the Spirit of God. God will discipline his wayward prophet. You know that and I know that because you've experienced it and I have certainly experienced it. No matter how far Tarshish is away from Nineveh, God knows exactly where we are and how to get to us. And so I want you to notice as I read through verses 4 through 13, two things. One thing I want you to notice is this, God finds Jonah. Jonah can go to sleep in the, in the hold of a ship, but God knows exactly where he is. And it's stunning how he communicates that to Jonah in just a moment. We'll see that. The second thing that I want you to notice is that the one that is transformed in this story isn't the prophet Jonah, it's the sailors of the ship. The prophet who knew God lives to deny God. The sailors who don't know God come to fear God. Let me show you what I mean as we read through it. Look at me beginning in verse 4. However, the Lord hurled a great wind in the sea, in, on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Remember the word hurl. God, God hurls a great storm. He's a hurler. He's, he's like a pitcher. We call a pitcher in baseball often a hurler. God's behind the storm. This tumultuous storm that, that Jonah is going to find himself is the result of God's discipline on Jonah. Now, what we see is that Jonah's sin doesn't affect just Jonah, nor the Ninevites. It affects those that are traveling on that ship with him. We often think, I, I can go my own way. I can make my own decisions. It doesn't affect anybody else. That is a lie. 
The wayward son or daughter can say, my choices are my choices. They don't affect anyone else. Well, listen to the parents crying through the night, pouring their heart out in prayer to God. The husband that says, my career has to take preeminence over everything, and that's what matters most. I provide for my family. I support for my, fa my family, which are good things. Uh, but that, tell that to the little children who never see their father at the t-ball game, never show up for the dance recital, never walk with them through the church doors. So, so this great storm, these are seasoned sailors, and they know that they're in danger. So verse 5 says, then the sailors became afraid and, very, and every man cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea. To lighten, it, to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below, or gone below in the stern of the ship, and laid down and fallen asleep. So God hurls a great storm. Now they're hurling out of the ship the cargo. Seasoned sailors realize we are in a predicament. We are in a serious situation here. The ship is about to come apart. We could go under. We've got to lighten the load. And Jonah like so many people, tries to sleep it off. So many people, when they, when they make bad choices, they just go to bed and stay there. They walk through life asleep, so to speak. So Jonah is sound asleep, though the ship is being tossed to and fro by a, a tempestuous storm. It says in verse 6, So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Everybody's calling on their God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. That is, they were polytheists. They, they, they all had their own God. They believed in many gods. Jonah's God might be the God that's causing the storm, or it might be Sailor Mike's job, God that's causing the storm. We don't know who's the one that's causing the storm. So Bill and Mike and all of the rest, they better be praying to their God because maybe their God is the one that can cause the storm to cease. Verse 7, and each man said to his, and each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may find out on whose account this catastrophe has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. Now think about that. What in the world are the odds that of all of the people on the ship, dozens and dozens of dozens of sailors, maybe some other travelers, that the lot is going to fall to Jonah, the odds are almost insurmountable, incomprehensible. God was saying to Jonah, I know where you are. You can hide in the stern of a ship. You can pull the covers up over your head. You can try and sleep me into oblivion. I know where you're at. And you know he knows where we are too. We may be in Tarshish, but he knows where we are. We may be in the midst of a of a tumultuous season, not because, not because we're headed to Tarshish, but because of something someone else has done. 
or because God's wanting to do something in us and we just think, I just, I just think sometimes God's forgotten me. He doesn't know where I am. He knows where 1010 Falling Tree Way is. And he knows where Jonah is. And the lot fell to Jonah. He can run. He can hide. He can put God out of his mind. But God knows exactly where he is. So the lot falls to Jonah. Uh, They say to him, tell us now on whose account this catastrophe has struck us. What is your occupation? And what do you do? Then the sailors begin to, or where are you from? Where is your country? From what people are you? Notice they're they're pouring on the questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? What in the world is taking place? So he answers and says, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah is not only a coward by running from God, he's a liar. He is a liar. He doesn't fear God. If you feared God, would you run from God? No, the fear of God gives us a reverence for God, an awe of God, a respect of God, a love for God, because he is the God who made the heavens and the earth. If he genuinely, authentically feared God, he would obey God. You see, he graduated with a, with a degree from prophecy school, maybe a PhD. He might be Dr. Jonah. He, he knows all of the right answers. He knows all of the right things to say. But you can give the right answers and you can articulate a proper theology, but you don't genuinely believe what you say you believe if you run away from God and try to hide in Tarshish. He doesn't fear God. Not genuine fear. Not godly fear. Not holy fear. How many people can articulate a proper theology and cheat on their spouse? Many, many, many people. How many people know all of the right things to say, but they're divested from engagement in among the people of God? It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to actually believe it. And when I know it and I believe it, I sometimes don't do it all the time just right. But I tell you, most of us do it right more times than not. Jonah's just not an imperfect person like we are. Jonah is a rebellious man running from God. And he can say the right words, but that's not helping the people that are in the boat any. The people in the boat are suffering because the man of God, the prophet of God, has rejected the call of God. So in verse 10, then the men became extremely afraid. Notice he's just said, I fear the Lord. Now they are extremely afraid. They said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Third time that's been said. Because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will become calm for us? For the sea was becoming 
increasingly stormy. And he said, to, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. They've already hurled the cargo into the sea. Now he says, just toss me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you because I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. That is, he could say, my sin only affects myself. It doesn't affect my children, my grandchildren, my co-workers. But that's just, a, that's just deception. That's just a falsehood. It's just not true. My sin greatly affects those around me. My children desperately need me to make right choices. My grandchildren need me to make right choices. I don't always make right choices. They need me to. I want you to notice thirdly that God can turn bad circumstances into salvation and glory. Uh, He can do the most amazing things as you and I know. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. He says, then they cried out to the Lord. Let me read verse 14. However, uh, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not because the sea was becoming even stormier against them. So they, let's, let's turn around and go back, but they can't make it back. Uh, then they cried out to the Lord and said, notice now they're not crying to a God, they're crying to the God. They're not crying to just any God, they're crying to the Lord God. They cried out to the Lord. We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for you, Lord, have have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And they stopped, and and it stopped its raging. Then the men became extremely afraid of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Notice, they believe in the Lord more than the prophet believed in the Lord now. They're offering sacrifices and making vows to the Lord. They're no longer praying to any God. They're praying to the one true and living God. They're praying to the God who made the heaven and this earth and the sea and all that is in them. What a transformation. The sailors are changed, and Jonah is just wet. He's been thrown into the ocean. Well, I want to give a few thoughts as we wrap up and move toward taking the Lord's Supper now. I want us to think about Jonah. I want us to think about ourselves, and I want us to think about Jesus. Jonah was a man who knew all the right answers. He just chose to live in the wrong way. He knew what he should believe, he just didn't believe it. Not not enough to actually obey God. He would get an A in theology, an F in living. You know, sometimes we think back and we've been in Tarshish. I don't know about you, I, I know I have. And sometimes I think back to those Tarshish seasons in my life And I allow them to to weigh me down, to overwhelm me, even though they're in, in, in my past. There are repercussions and there are consequences that come when we go to Tarshish. But when we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and we ask him to forgive us, he forgives us. 
We don't have to live with Tarshish hanging over us. There may be consequences. There may be repercussions. But we don't have to live as if Tarshish were on our record. Now, some of us are in Tarshish right now. I don't know who you are, and, and I don't know what that Tarshish may be, but you can, you can sense it in your heart. Jonas speaking to me. Tarshish isn't a good place to be. Leave Tarshish behind. What about Jesus? You know, Jesus mentions Jonah. He speaks of Jonah before the series is over. We'll look and see what Jesus had to say about Jonah. But Jesus is the very opposite of Jonah. Jonah was given a call from God and Jonah ran from God. Jesus was given an assignment from God and he embraced it. Jonah didn't want to receive God's call because he thought that those to whom he would preach might repent and he would rather they would go to hell than be forgiven of all of the travesties that they had committed. Jesus died for those of us who were his enemies. For while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Jonah's call was to go to Nineveh. Jesus' call was to go to a cross. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the fact that Jesus didn't run from God's plan. He embraced God's plan. He was a part of God's plan. He's the Redeemer that's brought salvation because of God's plan. And even though you and I have been to Tarshish, God has forgiven us, and God is still at work in us. I want you to take the, the, the bread for just a moment, the little wafer, and, and think about this for just a moment. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he passed it around the, to, the, to the disciples. He said, take, eat, do this in memory of me. Now, what he was saying is this, I want you to remember me when you do it. Do this in memory of me. And so I, some of you, I think you have probably already went ahead and thought, I already told you to take it, just fine. It's, you're, not a, you're still blessed by doing it. And so, and so what's happening is as we chew this up, we're thinking about him. As we chew this up, what we're remembering is he went to Tarshish after us. He, he, he sent Jesus to Nineveh for us. He, he, Jesus, did what we couldn't do. He died for our sins. We can't die for our sins. He died for our sins. Take and eat. Last service, the cracker got caught in my throat and it was very difficult to finish. They gave me some water. Uh, I want you to take the, the cup. Just hold it for just a moment. It, it, it's amazing that when God entered into covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, they passed in front of Moses by the tens of thousands and thousands and thousands, and he was sprinkling blood on all of them, pouring out the blood on all of them. They had to kill tens of thousands of, of lambs and calves and bulls, tens of thousands. And he was inaugurating the covenant between God and Israel, sprinkling the blood on them. Jesus said in the upper room that the cup was the inauguration of a new covenant in his blood, that the cup represented his blood. The cup wasn't his blood, it represented his blood. 
He wanted them and he wants us to do it in memory of him. Now, he's entered into a covenant relationship with those of us who know him through Jesus Christ. That covenant relationship is he has adopted us into his family. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has clothed us in a righteousness that's not our own. We are his children. He is our father. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. He's at work in you. He's at work in me. And if we try to go to Tarshish, he he knows where we're at. But he wants us to know he's committed to us. That his commitment is so strong and so definitive that he would allow his son to die for us. Would you take and drink? I'm going to ask if you'll stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. And then we're going to sing a final song together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning uh, that the book of Jonah, although written 700 and some years before Jesus came, it still speaks to us today. We needed to hear this today. I needed to hear it. I've been to Tarshish. I I find myself inclined to go there when circumstances and situations aren't quite what I would want them to be. Uh, But thank you that you won't let us go there without coming for us there. In Jesus' name, amen.